Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. It's, it's like Percy is no longer just a an unfortunate piece of, of luggage that she has to bring with her. <laughs> I love how you're like, let me find the right way to phrase this. Let me find the right words. Luggage. (laughs) Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Monster Donut, a literary and historical deep dive into the Percy Jackson series and all of its following spinoffs. I'm Phoebe, a dramaturg and story consultant. And I'm Emily, a classic scholar-ish. And today we'll be talking about episode four of the Percy Jackson and the Olympians TV show. I plunged to my death. What a great episode. The arch scene. Finally, it made it into I an know. adaptation. <laughs> also, I was dying because we like did we have we just like didn't talk about this when we talked about the book. So and now we have to. And now they're forcing us. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's a lot of good stuff here, though. I'm, I'm excited to dig in. Yeah, and like this, like I mentioned last episode, this was my favorite chapter when I read the book. And like mm. was my favorite chapter for years when I read The Lightning Thief. We just didn't mm. talk about it at all. <laughs> <laughs> this this particular take on it I also love. I really, I, I'm really into it. And I this is the episode that made me like gasp. There was the moment that made me <laughs> gasp when I was watching it through. Before we start, as always, our conversation will likely contain spoilers for the entire series. So yes. We are assuming you have read all of the books at this point and have also maybe listened to our podcast. So if you haven't read the books, this is your warning. <laughs> if you see yourself in this podcast, <laughs> um, yeah, you don't have to listen to our podcast, by the way, to, we're not, it's not like we're going to spoil our podcast, but. We're going to reference what we've talked about already, yeah. Yeah. Uh, speaking of which, so once again, opening on ambient noise, and this time it's like the sound of like waves and water, but we are opening on a dream sequence question mm-hmm. mark because it takes a second to, to realize this is all part of the dream but we open on this great scene of sally teaching young percy to swim in a class and there's so much in this scene just like the tension in her how much she's trying to get him to do that but then there's also the added like but we paid for this class like we really have like she's going through so much and She's working so hard to, like, not put all this pressure on him, but there's mm-hmm. so much pressure that she's feeling that it's, like, impossible to not, like, let it out a little bit. It's like she's doing everything she can to prepare this kid for what's coming, but uh, again, it's, like, it's the, the little mistakes and it's the getting frustrated. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, when and when Percy says breathe and she just goes, what? <laughs> and then stops herself. Like, you can just, you can feel how much they're both figuring it out figuring all of this out as they go we're gonna see as well how much this episode is about parenthood so it's an interesting place to start i think with percy comforting his mom also this moment is the one that dan was talking about when we cut him off in our episode one coverage because he started talking about spoilers for episode four it was while we were talking about sally introducing percy to the 
Greek myths. So we can let him finish his thought now. And just giving him giving him all those all those tools um, that he needed that she couldn't fully share all the details at this point, but she wanted him to have have have, have everything to to work towards it once she knew she would eventually have to share uh, the real story, the the story with him. Um, the you guys saw through four, right? So it's it's you know that opening scene. I think you know the fact that she's like I to teach you to swim like this is is um is is it was just when john came up with like that that was such a cool way of of just you know throughout the season just adding those little touches of of all the things that uh, that she had to do to protect her son i also i wanted to note percy being afraid to let go and saying that he wanted to go home yeah because we've talked before about percy's desire to run when things get scary and mm. also, it reminded me of the anxiety that we learned more about that Percy was dealing with as a child in Chalice of the Gods. And just knowing that this scene that we're watching, it's likely a memory, but it's also a dream that Percy's having right now. And what he's dreaming of is asking his mom to take him home, mm -hmm. saying that he doesn't want to do this, but also of him telling her that it's going to be okay. Yeah. And then we get this transition where we see young Percy now in the desert, in the sands. The campfires burned out. It's like the detritus of what was before in the last dream. And we see the figure again getting closer, looking more distinctly humanoid. Like you can see like four limbs now. You can see it like actually carrying this lantern. He says, hello again, little hero. What sort of trouble are you up to now? A forbidden child attracts attention. A forbidden hero, well, they attract doom. She is coming. Initially, halfway through this dialogue from Kronos, it felt threatening. Mm -hmm. You know, the whole they attract doom. But then the she is coming, I was like, another warning? Oh. <laughs> because he's, I mean, he's talking about Echidna. The fact that Kronos is actually warning him is, is still warning him. I also found the distinction between Forbidden Child versus Forbidden Hero interesting. And it's interesting as well, because when he said it like that, that also immediately conjured Thalia in my mind. Mm -hmm. That's the only forbidden child we've been introduced to so far besides Percy. And also, like, even in her brief introduction that we get from Luke and Annabeth, like, we, she's a hero. That's, that's the way we're characterizing her. That's the way we're introducing her. And also, we know that she was doomed. We knew that she did attract doom. And so, yeah, I thought, I thought that was really interesting because I think it also prevents, presents this idea of, like, Percy, you're a forbidden child right now, but are you a forbidden hero? Yeah. I had a couple thoughts that came out of this. One was, I don't know if we've done this yet in the show, but the, the fact that basically all demigods are just called heroes in the books. Like, there isn't really a distinction there. It's just, you are a demigod, so you are a hero. And it's sort of setting us up so that in either this episode or the one right before it, Percy should be sort of gaining hero status. Mm -hmm. which if you take it as like last episode he did kill medusa like perseus yeah. and that sort of aligns him with the heroes quote unquote because that's kind of how i i took this line was that percy has officially crossed the line from just like forbidden child to forbidden hero based on his actions mm. in the last episode and that's why she's coming like you you've attracted doom now and now she's coming mm. But Percy's first true act of heroism or attempted act of heroism for me was always this chapter was I plunged to my death because he nearly dies trying to protect in the book uh, the group of humans in the arch with them and here basically tries to sacrifice himself to save Annabeth and Grover while especially here killing Medusa just felt like less of a heroic act and more of a an unfortunate inevitability. <laughs> So we end up with these two dueling definitions of heroism, whether it's the mythological definition or whether it's this like sacrificial hero definition that we talked a lot about in Trials of Apollo. And it seems that at least the one that Chrono subscribes to is that ancient mythological version. It does bring to mind, I think, the interesting question of like, again, what makes a hero a hero and a monster a monster, which we will see yeah. revisited in this episode again, of like, well, the acts that would seem to be the most heroic at face value don't feel heroic. And the acts that seem to be the least, not the least heroic, but the acts that to an outside observer, to a god watching this, 
would feel like the least heroic, which is just, to me, the exchange between Percy and Annabeth right before the big art showdown. Like, the appearance of heroism versus actual heroism. And I think it is being set up in this show in a nice way, trickled in. Yeah. So, because we are obviously fascinated by these chrono screams because we quote them in full every time that we talk about them. Um, we asked Eric and Jeff about creating these dream sequences and about creating chronos. So we'll put that clip in here. So I have another question about a specific scene we've seen, because um, one of the things that really intrigued me watching these episodes was uh, the chronos dreams because mm. they diverge a bit. They're, they take a different direction from the book, I think, and how they're described. And I I really love what what's happening. And I was curious what um, what the approach there was as well uh, with both the figure of Kronos and the landscape that we see. Yeah, there's, um, I forget in the first episodes exactly how many of them you see, but um, there, there's, uh, the design of Kronos was really an iterative process uh, that we went back and forth on. And typically like we'll do all that work and then you want to just like bring it up close. But there's something that's actually really fun about kind of the mystery of Kronos in those early episodes. And the fact that it's, he's either shrouded in atmosphere or he's further, further away within these environments, I think it kind of plays into the narrative of him starting to appear in these dreams. Percy's having, uh, and that this character is, you know, back, uh, is, is a big part of the arc of this story. Yeah. And I think it's really interesting that you said, okay, so it diverges from the written page. Um, but I liked it. Uh, I think that goes to something we were saying earlier, um, this morning, uh, is that John Steinberg and Dan Schatz, uh, would love to hear that because, <laughs> You know, they take a chance and they, you know, they're so good at this. Um, they take a chance and hope that as a as a fan of the show, you um, have shown them that it's okay to step out once in a while and explore what might be different. Remember, this is all with with Rick and Becky's uh, approval. Um, so we're, we're that's always the overarching you know goal is to make sure that they're happy with it. But uh, that that's that's great. And what you will find out as you watch more episodes is you may see Kronos again. And as Jeff said, we will get closer um, at some point. So stand by. And then we have my, uh, I love Percy and Annabeth in this episode. They're dynamic. Mm -hmm. So he wakes up and he says, are you asleep? Annabeth says yes perfect exchange between them and so we finally get a little more from Annabeth about Thalia and also about herself and her parents which is really nice yeah so Annabeth first about Thalia she says she was tough I mean she knew she was a forbidden kid but she just didn't care when Luke and Thalia found me Luke cared for me right away but Thalia she made me earn it which on its own starts to paint a, a picture of Thalia but then we get the rest of the exchange <laughs> Which is that Percy says, is that why you give me a hard time? I got to earn it with you too. And when Annabeth says maybe, he says, I've got to say that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. The way you guys all talk, the way the gods want us to think. Got to burn an offering to get a parent's attention. Got to beat up on Clarice just to get my father to admit he's my father. It isn't supposed to work that way. People who are close to you aren't supposed to treat you that way. And so I just to like, there's a lot going on here. But the image that we're building of Thalia. I know. This is it. I mean, the thing is, it does really, I feel like it does jive with Book Thalia for me. Like this, but it's, it's again, I think similar to the what they've done with Annabeth and Grover. I think they're pulling out some of the more distinct traits of Book Thalia and making them much more big focal points of her character. And I think this, uh, this also intrigues me because it makes me think about um, if they might be delving a little bit more into, because as they've mentioned, like, the, for the creators of the show and the showrunners and stuff, like the themes of parenthood really are what they focus a lot on, what they've talked about a lot in terms of their way into the show. But it also makes me think about uh, perpetuating cycles because we also know Thalia in the books, she's had a, has had a really difficult relationship with her mother. She's been a parentified child. She's had a lot of this stuff. And also her father is Zeus, who is like the worst of the worst in terms of the gods being the worst to their demigod children in many ways. 
And so it made me think about how Thalia might also have been perpetuating a little bit of like what she's experienced growing up versus you see with Luke we're presented with as was sort of the foil to that where he welcomes her right away and he's like, no, let's make a family. Yeah, I I was thinking a lot about because we've talked about the family dynamic that Luke assigns them in his diary, that he makes himself father and then Thalia mother and Annabeth their child. And that dynamic is also kind of spelled out in Annabeth's home life and like in her story with the mother who she has to prove herself to and the father who cared for her immediately but who will eventually uh, make her life a whole lot harder (laughs) (laughs) but all of our all all of this information that we've been getting about Thalia what I've been thinking a lot about is the people who are coming to this story who haven't read the books and then what image of Thalia that they're building because so far we've gotten she sacrificed herself on the hill. She was <laughs> braver and yeah. stronger than Perseus, mm-hmm. in Annabeth's opinion. And then here we get she didn't immediately take care of Annabeth the way that Luke did, which is something that Percy immediately criticizes. Yeah. Which, you know, kind of signals to your audience that you should also be wary of that. And so I'm just, like we mentioned, I think two episodes ago, about Thalia being the ghost in the story who we're like slowly building the, who we're slowly starting to understand and whose story is slowly being trickled into the narrative it's interesting that the her depiction just isn't totally positive because in the book it's you know percy feels bad and i think he feels he says he feels guilty that there was a kid that was just like him who died trying to protect her friends um out on the Mm -hmm. hill it's just it's just mostly a positive image that we get from her while here it's a more complicated and uncertain image of her because like we talked about a couple times reading the original series Thalia is a character who is completely defined by the people who knew her and by who tells her story and how people interpret her story until she's essentially a myth by the time the third book comes around. And this exchange does a really good job of already introducing that doubt and the way her her story morphs in different people's hands. And as different people like Percy and Annabeth each try to take something from it. And we also get, like, this really interesting, like, I think the way Percy connects it all to the gods is very interesting to me, too, because, like, I think this is where we're seeing a little bit of what um, John was talking about, John Steinberg, in our Comic-Con interview, where he was saying, like, he's the one who's had Sally to guide him. Yep. That was also, as we see in the opening, in in the opening scene, like, it's complicated, it's hard, but also, like... You can see that she's the one that's really made a point to teach him, like, you know, like you don't have to earn love. Like, this is what this should look like. Yeah. I felt that especially when she's explaining how she ran away from her dad to yeah. Percy. And she says, it isn't the gods who think that way. It's everybody. Like, of course, she has a mindset like this because her parents only neglected yeah. her and abandoned her. And so that's what she understands of the world. And so small gestures like Athena gifting her her hat become larger than they actually are and having to prove yourself worthy of love Mm -hmm. or even just of attention um, starts to make sense to her while Percy because he had his mom he knows what unconditional love is in a way that Annabeth really doesn't because the people around Annabeth are always putting something before her like even Luke will do it by the end of this season so the, the only person who you could point out as an example of someone who might love her unconditionally is going to put something ahead of her at the end i also want to talk about the second half of what she was saying because then she says at least with the gods you know the rules which first of all how neurodivergent of her uh i know (laughs) (laughs) just that like i i know i can do it right (laughs) yeah she's like i know the rules there's a rule book it works this way you give in you get out you know which i can also see her finding a lot of comforting because i think that's something like that's a coping mechanism you see a lot in kids and you know houses where unconditional love isn't a thing unfortunately where you see a lot of people coping with that by trying to find rules trying to find ways to like manage situations it makes sense to me that she finds comfort in a place where there are rules and where they you know the parents act the same way she's used to yeah it gives her a a level of control in her relationship there and then she says show them respect and they'll bring be in your corner no matter what and then what is interesting is that she is sort of proven right in this statement later in this episode but to the opposite effect yeah 
um, because she finds out that she was impertinent for the last episode, and then they weren't in her corner. And it's also interesting because at the end of this episode, we see that Athena follows these rules, but Poseidon apparently doesn't, because mm-hmm. Poseidon reacts to Percy's impersonance by helping him, where Athena yes. leaves Annabeth out to dry. Yeah, this episode, like you mentioned, it's definitely a, a meditation uh, on several things, but a huge part of it is the parent-child dynamics with us opening on Sally and Percy and then hearing this story from Annabeth and then trying to get in touch with their parents on the arch. But we also get Echidna and the Chimera as a sort of counterpoint to their all of their relationships with their parents. Then we get them, cut to them eating, and we yeah. kind of get introduced to what I think is a pretty big secondary theme for this episode, which is Grover's, as we know from having read the book's ultimate arc. So Percy's looking out the train window, and he's seeing all these centaurs. I love that Percy's seeing uh, creatures out here in like the real world, and yeah. his friends can see them too. For the first time, yeah. he's out there seeing seeing monsters out in the real world, and people are reacting like they're actually there. Oh uh, yeah, I didn't even think about that. The way this conversation goes is, I think Grover brings up that there used to be herds of centaurs everywhere, and they're in the Midwest, in the in the Great Plains at this moment. And Percy's like, oh, what happened to them? And Grover says, humans. Which to me was really interesting, because it felt very reminiscent of, like, what actually happened to the buffalo in America. Mm-hmm. Which I think a lot of people might not know, which is that the buffalo... were brought to near extinction in America because they were a food source for a lot of indigenous American tribes. And so there was um, basically bounties put on them to encourage people to go out and just kill as many of them as possible. Like that is very much what actually happened to the buffalo for the purposes of the expansion of Western civilization, essentially. Yeah, we can put a big pin in that because I have plenty of notes on this once we get inside the arch. Yeah, put a pin in that. We're going to come back to it. I spent a lot of the scene trying to piece together why these two separate conversations were interlocked in this way. Because this doesn't start out as a conversation about the centaurs outside the window. It starts out as a conversation about how prophecies work. Like Percy saying, like, why isn't anyone reacting to the fact that I told you guys that the end of the prophecy is that this quest is going to fail? And then we go into this centaur moment and then we return back to prophecies don't always mean what you think it means. They're just kind of sandwiched like that. Um, This conversation around like humanity destroying nature and the idea of like you will fail to save what matters most in the end. But that having multiple meanings, what I was what I was taking from it was foreshadowing, was that Grover will not be saving Pan, what matters most to him at the end of his quest. Mm. I also, the word protect here for Pan was mm. was a fun little, just the, the fact that he's protector of the wild and the idea of a, a protector mm. of nature. And then all of these satyrs becoming protectors of these children of humans was just, I was like... I wonder, I wonder how all of the, I wonder if there are satyrs who are like anti-protecting demigods. They've gotta be. Where's the satyr revolution? (laughs) The satyr agenda with the horse agenda. Yeah. What did strike me that I thought was interesting was Annabeth was basically saying like, I think it's, it's sort of reminiscent of Luke being like, nah, if you try to figure out what the gods are doing, you'll drive yourself crazy. Which also, coming back to that now, I'm thinking about it, comparing it to Annabeth being like, there's rules. We sort of have these two with very different points of view on that. And But then also Annabeth basically saying, fates and prophecy, though, that means a lot of things. Like, the more you try to figure it out, the weirder and harder and worse it's going to be. Which right. was very strange to me coming from her. I don't know. It didn't feel very, like, she was basically saying we need to go with the flow, which didn't feel very Annabeth to me. I didn't take it as we have to go with the flow. I took it more as like her just explaining the ways that prophecies work to Percy. Like we we spent a lot of these series trying to figure out exactly how prophecies worked. And in Charles of Apollo, we got like a, a more solid answer to that. But in the first series, I think we landed on like there are several different ways a prophecy can play out, but somehow yeah. the words in the prophecy will always be true. Like with the great prophecy, it it could have been Thalia's in the Titan's Curse, or it could have been Percy's. It all depended on their choices at the end of the day. But just the words in the prophecy would have come true no matter what. So there are different ways that the prophecy can go. And so I figured that Annabeth was just like doing a little bit of world building. <laughs> just that's explaining fair. Fair. how prophecies work. Okay, yeah, I, I, that's fair. That's fair. I think it's being like, it can go a bunch of different ways. And then we get the beginning of a wild sequence. Love it. Obsessed. 
I enjoyed the Percy Annabeth dynamic in this episode so much too because they were both just like there are moments when I'm watching like Walker and Leah where I'm like my brain just goes that's them Mm. there'll be like a look they'll do or something where I'm like yep that's them that's Annabeth and Percy (laughs) and I was getting so many of those moments in this episode (laughs) Mm. the exchange when Percy's like, can I ask a dumb question? And it's like, it's like yes. you need me to make fun of you. <laughs> I was yeah. like, straight out of the book. Because <laughs> I feel like also, like, you know, Annabeth here is coming out of her shell a lot more. Like, I feel like mm-hmm. before she's been really, you know, she's been much more reserved. She hasn't been acting as much, like, the way she actually is, you know. And I think now she's actually starting to open up and, like, show more of who she really is instead of, like, putting on this, like, stoic commander face. I I don't I we've we've already talked about how we don't think that Annabeth is putting on a mask or in any way. So I don't want to say she's That's putting fair. on a stoic commander face. <laughs> Not putting on a mask. I think she's just playing a role, you know? Like I think this is who she is, but she's also like this is my role in this quest. So I'm going to do it. Yeah, I think Annabeth it wasn't like she was letting her guard down around them it was more just like there was no reason for her to show her show this side of herself yeah like until she formed a personal relationship with percy like it's not like she was hiding this part of herself at all it was just she's a soldier on a mission there's no reason for her to relax with them and she's also she's made herself the leader of the quest also okay let's let's talk about the chimera and echidna because this whole bit which takes place, uh, I'll note, in a meal car on the train. That's crazy. Yeah. That's yeah. so crazy. <laughs> Who could have predicted that? <laughs> so their cabin gets trashed. They're sitting down and this lady that originally blamed them. For the record, I want to make a note of her outfit in this because she's wearing like this tweed blazer. She's got all this really nice looking jewelry on. I, I, I found it interesting because I also kept looking at her face and thinking she's looks a little like Sally Jackson. But she's, like, the prim rich. Like, she sort mm. of got this bizarro thing, especially when she gets talking, because she's talking a lot about, like, motherhood and a lot of the stuff we've seen Sally struggling with and trying to navigate both in the series, but also in the first scene of this episode. Like, I think that's a very interesting way that we're really being reminded of Sally as her role as a parent at the beginning of this episode, and then we're getting Echidna. And also, like, our introduction to Sally is her saying, like, what's a monster, basically? Like, drawing that question forward, and Echidna is continuing that theme as well with everything she's talking about. Because basically, she ends up confessing to the kids, like, oh, no, I did this all on purpose because I'm training my child to hunt demigods. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Echidna... She doesn't just reiterate the monster theme. She really complicates it because she takes it from where is the line between a hero and a monster and into I am a mother in the same way that your mother is a mother. And not only that, but we are actually all family. She says, like, monsters like me. Monster. It's an odd word. Uh, It's an odd word considering my grandmother is your great grandmother. And this has always been a family story. Um, Mm. this has always been a family story, tagline, poster line, t-shirt line. (laughs) Because it's like, this episode especially is all about how you treat your family. And the difference between a a monster and a demigod or a hero is so slim, like we talked about. Especially in, I remember it coming up in Battle of the Labyrinth, and whether Daedalus could be classified as a monster at the end. Because there are like, there are world building reasons happening for a distinction the the whole they sense your weaknesses and that they crumble when they die so there is like an actual line that you're crossing into like monster but it's also like the this is just another species from you and like what makes it this thing that you have to go out and kill because like echidna says in her eyes the demigod is the more dangerous creature and that she's here to stand in the way of monsters Mm -hmm. like that's just the word that you've given it yeah you know what's wild to me? Yeah. When we killed Medusa in the last episode, her body stayed invisible. So we don't oh, know what yeah. happened to her. Like, that's kind of our key bit of evidence of, like, if you're a monster, you will turn to dust when you die. And we don't get that information. That is really interesting. I am going on a deep dive now because I'm curious what the origin of the word monster is. <laughs> 
As I kind of suspected, there isn't really a Greek word for mon- there isn't a single Greek word for monster. What I did find was the English word monster has an interesting origin. It comes from Latin. The Latin word monstrum, which we actually think comes from Proto-Italic monestrum, which actually is comes from the verb moneo, monere, which is to warn. It's a warning. So interestingly, the origin of the word monster is like basically a warning. Um, and a couple of the most generic Greek words I could find for monster also kind of mean warning. So what's a monster, etymologically speaking? It's a warning. I mean, most of the monsters in this series are, are treated as warnings of something greater that usually isn't technically a monster. It's a, it's mm-hmm. a titan. It's a god. It's a demigod. Like the monsters in this series are mostly used as pawns of other, other beings. So they kind of are warnings. Yeah. So they do manage to escape the train, and they head into St. Louis, where Annabeth says that there is actually a sanctuary dedicated to Athena, where they will be safe in St. Louis, which it turns out is the arch. And I, I love her just rattling off architectural facts as they approach. And she, like, really comes alive when she's talking mm-hmm. about it, too. Like, she's really, you could tell, you can see the passion. Yeah. It reminded me so much of when they're when they get to the dam in the third book and they're all I just know. saying all of the facts that Annabeth has said to them. It's so important <laughs> that we include this aspect of her. It's yeah. so important. I think especially I was thinking a lot about what you were saying about how you feel like Annabeth is really into architecture because she wants to build monuments to the gods specifically to get her mom's attention. Because they're talking about like, what do you mean this is a temple? This isn't this doesn't look like a Greek temple. And she says, this is how you show Athena your love, a monument built to the power of perfection. Yeah. We're seeing how Athena, through Annabeth, values perfection. Yeah. And how that's impacted Annabeth. And we also see, again, that little bit of disconnect between her and Grover when Grover says, well, it's a monument to some other stuff, too. And the camera pans when Mm -hmm. they're in the visitor center. And it pans past the buffalo, the skull of it's a buffalo skull and a model of buffalo. So I, this is, yeah, feels very intentional. <laughs> and Annabeth tells him that he's talking about what humans have tried to make this place, but she's talking about what it actually is. But at the same time, it's it's the same thing. Like it's it's literally the same thing that they're talking about because it's still Athena comes out west with the rest of Western civilization, and a monument is built to her. Like, the gods' existence in America and people coming out west are the same thing. Yeah, and this led me to, I I was looking, I was doing some research on the arch, because I don't actually know that much about it, and this made me curious. And one thing that really stood out to me was, um, you know, I'm skimming the Wikipedia page, as you do, and one of the sources they used was this article about the arch. It's from the St. Louis, an article in the St. Louis Dispatch, apparently, and um, it was the daughter of one of the people who was responsible for building the arch, said in this article, quote, people would tell him we need more practical things, and he would respond that spiritual things were more important. And the title of the article, um, which was published in 1985, was called The Triumph of the Arch, which stood out to me because, as you might have heard me talking about before, triumphal arches are a huge thing, especially in ancient Rome. And so that really connected a bunch of dots to me here. This is the United States of America triumphal arch celebrating the same thing that the Romans would often be celebrating when they were building triumphal arches, which is building arches to commemorate victories militarily. But most of the Roman military victories involved a lot of conquest, genocide, and generally like a similar concept to Manifest Destiny. Like there's that great quote, like Rome conquered the world in self-defense. It really struck me as like, oh yeah, this really is the United States perpetuating legacy of Rome here. Like, not only are we doing the same thing where we're like expanding and building out, and they also built a freaking triumphal arch right there to commemorate it, just like the Romans would have. Like, Athena is a war goddess too. Yeah. So a lot of the arches in Rome would have been consecrated to her too, because she's she's a war goddess. Yeah. Minerva is the same. Rick is wrong. Don't listen to him. So they would go to the Minerva temple before they went unconscious. That was a thing that, that, that was Roman. Mm. So, yeah, again, it's really just exactly the same thing that they're talking about here. 
So Grover goes to try and get them new train tickets because they blew up the last one. And Percy and Annabeth stay behind. Oh, also important to note, Percy was stung by something. They don't know if it's venomous or not yet. It's a very Percy move to be like, well... I'm probably fine, even though I'm slowly getting weaker and weaker before your eyes. <laughs> and I think we also get a bit of an expansion on Annabeth's fate talk earlier, where she's yeah. talking about luck and fate. Yeah. Percy is basically like, oh, well, you were right. Like, it's it's pretty lucky that we happened to be in the right city for a sanctuary like this. And Annabeth says, luck or fate? This reminded me of, I, obviously, I'm just thinking about Luke's diary today. It reminded me of what we talked about, where Thalia kept seeing signs from her dad everywhere, and Luke would just be like, no, it's all, it was luck, it was chance. It just happened yeah. to happen that way. I just, I love when Percy plays the Luke role, obviously, and so... I also was interesting when she says, I know you think it's all just in my head, like, about how she's, like, looking mm -hmm. for signs and stuff. And Percy goes, I didn't say that. Clearly, Annabeth is anticipating him saying that, or this is, like, an insecurity of hers, where she's, like, anticipating pushback like this. Like, I, and I, I think this is, again, the insecurity we saw in Medusa's layer a little bit, where it's like, are you, you think you're right about everything, but are you? Being, like, the kind of thing that eats at her. Yeah, like, I think we were spending a lot of time talking about the development of Percy's relationship to his dad. But I think Annabeth is also on her own journey with that, with, with her relationship to her mom, where she was asked to question her mother in the last episode with Medusa, and then in this episode, we'll again have to face the reality of who her mother is so we're slowly chipping away at the mental image that she has of athena um, and making her question herself while percy is on a slightly different trajectory with his relationship to poseidon by the end of this episode where he like we'll talk about might actually have something that he can find some faith in i also think this episode really introduces temples and i think this is something we've seen a lot up to this point as well like the way the cabins are designed the way the big house is designed the way the montauk cabin is designed there's so many places in this world that we've seen already that look like temples or could be temples mm -hmm. and we're also introducing an idea that monsters can't come into temples and sanctuaries as yeah. well so this is kind of new so i'm curious how this ends up playing out I was sitting there thinking through, like, do they ever go into another temple or sanctuary that I know of, like, where this will come into play? I think camp is a sanctuary, you know? Well, so yeah, besides camp, I couldn't think of any, but for some reason, my immediate thought was um, the safe house that they made, like, the, the like, little... Oh. <laughs> I know this wasn't really built as a, a temple to anyone, but the idea of that is, like, a safe place for them. Might have accidentally been, though, a sanctuary. Right, like, without the meaning to, like, that's what it what yeah. it became. Because that's, that's Hermes, like, that's, like, the Herms on the road, like, that's that's Hermes, mm -hmm. like, ward off evil along the road, like, little houses and safe places, like, that, that's all Hermes. But that was the only one I could think of, and it's not, I mean, it's real to me, but it's not, like, mm -hmm. <laughs> defined in the text as a temple. But then we get from Annabeth, she says that, you know, we are in a temple, so... Maybe you'll be able to get in touch with your dad while we're here. And he says, no, he doesn't want to. He says, I don't want anything from him. Which is what I was saying in episode two. Because there are things that I think he'd like to prove to his dad. And things that he wishes he could make his dad pay for. But there isn't anything that he actually wants from him besides wishing he'd been there instead of neglecting him. Because, like he said earlier, that's not how you treat people you care about. And then there's a great little moment of tempting fate right if i have to stick with someone and then <laughs> careful i think you're about to call me a friend oracle's probably left i got to at us right and then percy collapses immediately like <laughs> yeah the tides change immediately like oh okay they don't care about us when we need them but the second we're like well but like they haven't actually done anything for us have they immediately just like the tides turn and then they're trying to heal Percy in a fountain. I This seems so funny. <laughs> it's so funny. When I saw it in like the preview for episode three, I was like, what? <laughs> they're just splashing him in a fountain and he looks miserable. He's just like, oh, get me out of here. <laughs> My, when I saw it in the preview, I was like, the obvious answer is that they're trying to heal him. But in my brain, I was like, is he just, have they discovered now that he doesn't get wet and they're trying to get him wet? <laughs> <laughs> 
That would have been funny. My question here is, is he not healing from the water because he doesn't believe in his dad or because he was impertinent? I think like in the books for Percy, there are so many times where he's like, this shouldn't work, but I'm just going to believe it works. And then it, and then it works. Mm-hmm. And I think here, he's just gone on a whole spiel about how he doesn't believe in his dad. And he, he's just like, whatever, I don't want anything from yeah. that guy. I don't like, like, I don't think he believes and I think that's what the scene at the end of this episode also shows to me is like he's just not thinking. He's not believing. He's not embracing. His, he's not embracing his godliness at all. And then we see Echidna talk to Annabeth. We don't get to hear what she says, which I, I really like. They run in anyway. And right as it's too late for them to leave, we find out that Athena let the chimera yeah. and Echidna into the temple because of uh, the quote is, my impertinence wounded my mother's pride. You see Annabeth go through a whole journey here where she's just like, you see her, you see her go through it where she's learned this thing, like she's she broke the rules. She didn't want to break the rules, but she did. Like she takes the blame for it though, even though like she warned Percy not to do it and yeah. you know, he ignored her. And I think she's sitting there like ready to sacrifice herself to make things right despite the fact that like it really was Percy's fault like she didn't it wasn't her idea Athena's always punishing people for things that aren't their fault (laughs) but you see like how she's internalized that where you see like the thought process where she's like this is my fault and the fact that Annabeth has so little evidence of her mom in her life and that this is like one of very few times that her mom has interacted with her like she does all of this stuff to try and get her mom's attention and to prove herself in a way that will make Athena want to come down to her like she puts all of that on herself rather than blame Athena for any of it and her mom from what we've seen has only reached out to like give her the hat but then like we have in the last episode that um Percy's saying like oh you can't reach out to her like you don't you act like you have like this relationship with your mother that you just don't have and this is like one of the few times that her mom would reach out is to punish her but she broke the rules so in her head it makes sense yeah like this is what she's learned this is what her childhood has taught her and it's the fact that she would go from like the the pride of athena the pride of athena's offspring to i'm gonna let this thing come and probably kill you over this one thing it's like this this is what athena does like you embarrassed her and that's it it's it's over for yeah. you it makes that perfection line really stick too like mm-hmm. like this is what athena did to medusa in her temple once before and now she's doing it again like she's punished the women who worship her here for less than this and both for things that weren't their fault so they make it to the top of the arch clear out all of the people from up there by um annabeth pulls the fire alarm which i it's so funny because I think we've talked about this before, but I'm not totally sure about Annabeth being a rule breaker when it comes to stuff like this, because there's that one moment that might come up in the next episode in Waterland where Percy doesn't want to steal from the store in the book. And Annabeth is like, whatever, where she has a certain disrespect for the rules of the human world. So like in this episode, her standing up to the cop on the train, her pulling the fire alarm here while at the same time being very worried about sticking to the rules that the gods have laid out for her. So I just enjoy, I enjoy this little detail of Annabeth thinking to pull the fire alarm. But they clear out the arch, and this is where Annabeth chooses to sacrifice herself. This is the part that made me gasp. First, when, you know, Annabeth's about to lock them out and face the chimera, and Percy is like, well, take this, and gives her Riptide, which we have established. Mr. Brunner, uh, Chiron does establish that you can give Riptide to somebody else and then the magic will start working on them. So I was like, he, he's going to give her a Riptide? No, he says, reverse Uno, I'm going to sacrifice myself. And he uses that to trick her and pushes her and locks her and Grover out. And it's like, nope, you guys finished the quest. I'm going to die anyway. Let's just let's just make this happen. Yeah, this was, I, I, I do want to talk about this from Percy's perspective, but just thinking about this scene from Annabeth's perspective, there is so much going on here for her. Because, like, on one hand, she is making a sacrifice of herself in her mother's temple, knowing how much she's disappointed her mother here and ready to take the punishment for it. But also, I was thinking about how kind of she's trying to play the role of Thalia on this quest because she is the leader, she is the warrior, and now she's going to stand here and she's going to sacrifice herself to protect her friends. But then, 
Percy forces her back into the position she was in as a little girl, as a seven-year-old. And now she has to watch as this forbidden kid, as this forbidden child, sacrifices themselves to defend these other two. And so does Grover. Grover has to watch that happen too, again. Especially with, in both of these moments, the Doom at the beginning of the episode when we were talking about Thalia and how Doom followed her because she was a forbidden hero. And now here's Percy playing Thalia, where Athena tells Annabeth that she has attracted Doom once again. Like, this is a very loaded moment for Annabeth. And for Percy, we'll probably talk about his attitude here throughout this scene, but he has very little faith right now, and he knows that he's dying. Which I think he also says in the book, like, he knows that he's dying. And he uses whatever last moments he thinks that he has, trying to protect the people around him. This whole time, too, we've led up to him basically saying, like, my dad's never helped me. It's fine. And then Echidna comes in and she's echoing these same thoughts. She's saying all of these things that they've been, that Percy's been saying for the whole episode. She says, you know, as the chimera is kind of stalking towards Percy, like, you never had a chance, did you? If only someone cared enough for you to provide you one. Um, also, can we just take a moment to admire the chimera? I know. I know. I think now's a good time to cut in as well. The yeah. clip we have where we asked Eric and Jeff about the chimera and this whole sequence. Yeah, and it was so cool to get to hear you all talk about it and hear how passionate you were and then like see the payoff of the hard work as well. Like I know I was looking at the Chimera like. I know, uh, I, I, she's gorgeous. <laughs> I, I, I told know. Emily the second I saw her on, on the screen, I was like, oh my God, she's beautiful. Like she's stunning <laughs> in a terrifying way. <laughs> and, and I have to say the the sound effects when I first saw it where, you know, you hear the... <laughs> that sort of thing he's so good the the gentleman you know emmy award-winning sound designer um is is excellent and john and dan always get him on their shows and uh he never disappoints uh so yeah i mean that's that's part of it is the sound we know we always work in you know quite literally in a vacuum with no sound so we're like you do i think you work harder though right jeff is yeah. is like you it has to be picture you know each frame you're looking at and everything and then when you see it with sounds you just go oh my god this is so much better with sound <laughs> yeah it, the two whenever i sit down and watch a show i've worked on the two things i'm amazed by are how fast the sequences go by because you'd spend you know a year on the minotaur fight and then it's over like that but then seeing it with sound and how much better everything looks, <laughs> yeah. it really, it really elevates. And that, that's what's so fun about it is it's all that final polish, the sound, the color work. It really all kind of snaps together. Can you talk a little bit about creating her and creating the the art scene um, in general? Since is it a curved set? Is it a physical set? No, it was uh, the art department built the entire thing. It's a little bit smaller than the original. And if you if you're a very keen observer, um, she the chimera actually walks up over, um, and then you cut away, and when you come back, she comes back. You know, there's a little bit of uh, retracing your steps, um, but hopefully most people don't see that. Um, the fact that he gave us uh, that Dan Henna gave us that entire uh, set to work with was really, really special because it is really uh, a, a tiny little space. And we knew that when we created the Camara that it was gonna be how, she, you know, she's she's huge. You know, she's bigger than a, than a lion, a lioness. Um, so how do you, you know, do, does her horn scrape the top of it? Uh, we had thoughts of that, would it look too silly? So, I mean, you, you go through, a. a and, and and we kind of made it work for that. Um, and, you know, it gives you so much. Like that first moment where she comes up over the essentially horizon um, mm. is so much more impactful. Uh, yeah, to some degree, maybe Rick always had that in mind when he uh, when he had the scene take place in the arch is he he had that particular shot in mind. We uh, mm -hmm. certainly didn't disappoint on that because I think that to me is one of the best moments and of course the the flame and uh and her ability to rip open that hole where you're you know hanging above it uh and looking down at, and then when he falls uh, to me it's so um it, it's so scary it's so real 
you know, when you drop back and you see him falling and it's like, oh my God, yeah. it, right? You're, you're really yeah. feeling it. And then, you know, in, you know, something intervenes. I won't give, give <laughs> what it is, but I mean, from the books, you know, that something does. Um, but I mean, it, it, the scene is just so much fun. The Camara was, was one of the best designs, as I said before, you know, that mashup of a lioness and a um, goat and a snake just all made, you know, for a great image that I think people are, you're loving it. I love it. It's one of my favorites. And I hope uh, the audience does too. You know, if you had asked me as a middle schooler, or as a high schooler, why this chapter was my favorite chapter in the book, I probably would have said, uh, because I love seeing characters in pain, but also... <laughs> This is the first time in the book that Percy prays to his dad. And if you asked me, elaborate on that, I would have been like, I can't. <laughs> because I I always found it surprising that he did pray at the end of that chapter because we had just, he's been developing this idea of his dad in his head thanks to, you know, what he's learned at camp, but also what he experienced with Medusa. Um, and that being like his first story that he got about his dad. But all of the faith that he still has in his dad seems to come from the fact that he's sure that his dad visited him when he was a baby and here i love that they were like no actually like if you get rid of that like what does he actually have to hold on to of his dad at this point and it's nothing except for maybe the stories that his mom told him about his dad except that we've just messed with all of those with the medusa scene <laughs> and so there's just nothing for him to hold on to at this point and i think that this was a great choice that we don't actually see percy pray to his dad here Instead, it's a total lack of faith. There was never going to be any kind of godly intervention and a total belief that he is going to die up here, but at least he can make sure that he protects his friends while it happens. When he just falls. Yeah, the, water... the sound goes out like they said in yeah. our interview. So good. The sound design here. And the water just grabs him. And you just like can't help but think that this wasn't Percy. No, this wasn't Percy. This was Poseidon. Reaching out where Athena wouldn't. And then he's trapped at the bottom. He's trying to get up to get air. Then he sees a light that looks a lot like Cronus's light. <laughs> it's very similar. Like you have to think, oh, he was saved by the figure in his dreams for a second. <laughs> and then you hear a woman's voice. Yeah, she says, your father sent me to tell you it's all right. Uh, just breathe. Your father is here. He has always been here. It is so hard for him to stand back to see you struggle. It is so hard for us all. But he's here, and he's so very proud. Trust him. Trust yourself. Just breathe. To quote Sally from the beginning, who is... Yeah. To quote Percy from the beginning, who's quoting Sally. What I thought was really interesting here were the turning points, because what finally makes him stop is when she says, your dad is proud of you. That's what gets his attention. Um, but he's still not gonna. he's still not breathing until she says, trust yourself. Like, he doesn't trust this. He doesn't trust him. He trusts himself. This is, like, I can already feel it, even though we haven't seen the next episode, that this is the turning point. Like, this is this is where Percy starts to actually have a little bit of faith in his father. Based on the teaser for next episode, I have some ideas. I have some ideas <laughs> of what I'm going to be giving speeches on in the, in the next episode. <laughs> mm. Mm -hmm. That's all I got. That's kind of all I got, too. <laughs> it's a short episode. It's kind of just like a 30 minute, very compact, like meditation on a couple of, of ideas that are, are big in this series. Just mm -hmm. a meditation on parenthood, a meditation on monsterhood. There's a little bit of fate and prophecy in there too. Mm -hmm. Belief, I think. And I, honestly, I for me, my biggest takeaway was like the temples and the belief situation, especially the first time I watched it. Because I thought, I think that's also very important of like, what's a temple? what does it mean to believe like how does belief play into these kids lives and it's the start of the western civilization yeah concept. finally getting it we're getting western civ and we're starting with manifest destiny i love to see it i love to see it this is the way we're not talking about the west as the shining beacon of everything no 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 chiron doesn't even get a word on it mm -mm. I wonder, it makes me wonder if we will, like, get into that in this season, if someone will explain to Percy, like, this is how we ended up here. I wonder if, I can, you know what, I just had a weird premonition, Hermes, in 
Hermes. I can see. I can see this scene at the Lotus Hotel, right? Because this is sort of like Vegas. Like if you think about it, is very like Western capitalist. I can see Hermes being like. I can see that unfolding where he's like, "Listen, has anyone taught you about how the West works?" Like I feel like Hermes has a perspective and a point. He has he has things to say about it because hmm. he's you know he's he's the he's the courier. He's the guy that's delivering everything. He's the god of the roads. Like he's part and parcel to expansion and all of that too so maybe you'll hear it you know who you might hear it from is Ares in the book is like I Mm. love this I love ever since western civilization came over here this has been great (laughs) we could get it from Ares I know my money's on Hermes though that's my bet I'm placing my bet in the Lotus Casino on Hermes my bet is on either Aries or or Luke, but I guess I have to choose one because that's it's not really betting. <laughs> I mean, Luke's definitely going to talk about it. I just think the concept's going to be introduced by Hermes. Yeah, I think concept gets concept gets introduced by Aries. Uh, that's my bet, and I'm going to be wrong. <laughs> so I actually came up with my bead for this one pretty easily. Oh, I'm going to go with the buffalo skull in the museum. Hmm, that's a good one. I was thinking, like, oh, maybe I should take something from the the displays on Manifest Destiny, but then I couldn't think of one of the displays that wasn't hard for me to draw, but the skull isn't easy for me to draw, so that's, that's a good one. <laughs> I thought the arch originally, but then I was like, nah. That's too easy. That's too easy. <laughs> maybe I'll do, like, that shot of Percy um, underwater when mm-hmm. when he, like, finally breathes and it's just him in, like, that, like, murky water. Mm-hmm. No McDonald's rappers, though. No McDonald's rappers. I'm really, you know, this adaptation has really been disappointing me. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you all for listening to Monster Donut. Next time, we will be discussing episode five, uh, A God Buys Us Cheeseburgers, which is the first episode that we didn't get screeners of so we'll be watching it along with everyone i've been kind of missing that as much as it's as helpful as getting these episodes early has been i've been missing getting to watch these episodes with everyone for the first time so i'm very excited especially because everyone keeps hyping up episode five (laughs) i know everyone we've talked to has been like episode five you're not ready you're not ready what happens (laughs) what does it mean i know (laughs) so before we start telling you where you can find us and everything, we want to say thank you to our patrons. Joke, Sydney Fox, Bethany Ayers Fisher, Patty VCK, Latino Kea, Roman Consul, Emily Ann Bonnie, Window Wells, and RK. If you'd like to become a patron, which uh, now includes you can listen to our episode predicting the entire show that we recorded before we watched it, um, plus uh, plenty more content to come. That link will be in our link tree, um, which you can find on all of our social media, which is at PJOPod on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. There's new merch in our merch shop. (laughs) Oh, did you make the Cleo shirt? I made the Cleos and the Nostos (laughs) shirt. For if you're Team Luke or Team Percy. I'll be buying the Team Luke one. <laughs> I still, I need you to send me what the Greek is so that I can make the Greek oh. version. But for now, it's just how I knew how to spell them. So if you want to show your, show your allegiance <laughs> to glory seeking versus homecoming, you can now do that at monsterdonut.redbubble.com. And if you have left us a rating or a review... Um, or recommend us to a friend. Thank you very much. That also really helps us out. And uh, we've been getting some emails already with wrap-up questions and general thoughts, which we love. Please keep sending those in. We are going to be doing a wrap-up upcoming of both Trials of Apollo and the TV show. Two separate episodes. (laughs) Yeah, two separate episodes. Can you imagine? (laughs) (laughs) If you are emailing us, you will do that at monsterdonutpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you all for listening. Bye. Bye. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. 
Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.